How could Jesus be the Messiah when most of the Jewish people rejected him? Down through history, Jews have been killed by those who claim the name of Jesus. But if we read carefully what the Jewish prophet Isaiah had to say about the coming Messiah, no follower of the biblical Jesus could ever spill the blood of one of his own race. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wordson, as we continue to listen to Isaiah's telling of the Christmas story. One of my favorite Christmas carols is the song. It's not really a Christmas carol. I guess it'd be more like a Christmas song. It's Do You Hear What I Hear. Anybody else like that song? Do you hear what I hear, right? And the words to that, the final verse goes something like this. said, The king to the people everywhere, Do you know what I know? Do you know what I know? A child sleeping in the night. He will bring us goodness and light. This song raises an issue, do you hear what I hear, is a phrase that the Lord Jesus himself liked to use a lot. How many of you have ever read in the Gospels, let him who has ears to hear, finish it. What? Let them hear. Why did the Lord say that? Because it's so easy for us to go through celebrations, for us to have Christmas time, for us to meet together as families and talk about the gift of the baby Jesus and talk about him being born. And yet, as we do that, it's easy to realize as we've gone past that time that we really didn't take a real lot of effort in thinking through what was the mission of the Messiah. What was the message of the Messiah? And something very interesting that as we think about the mission of Jesus, Jesus was born to a Jewish mother. His birth was announced to just Jews. The wise men came from the east and they said, where is he that's born the king of the Jews? And yet, you know, because there's not that many Jewish people around this area, you don't feel near the dichotomy that I used to feel when I was being raised back in New Jersey. Because back in New Jersey, there were a lot of Jewish people around, and at Christmas time, you were faced with a tremendous conflict. In fact, in our schools, we didn't sing just Christmas carols. We also sang, Oh, Hanukkah, oh, Hanukkah, come light the menorah. Let's have a party, we'll all dance the hora. You know, we had to sing all the Jewish songs for our Jewish friends. And there was this big dichotomy. There was the Christians, quote, quote, that were celebrating the birth of the Messiah, and then there were the Jewish people that were celebrating Hanukkah, which is a perfectly valid festival. It's the Lord Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. In the book of John, he said, I am the light of the world, right in the middle of the Hanukkah festival. But what I want you to start to feel a little bit is, as we're celebrating the birth of Christ and we talk about him being the Messiah, there's a tremendous conflict and a tremendous issue that you need to come to grips with. How could Jesus possibly have been the Messiah when most of the Jewish people reject him? Most of the Jewish people don't honor his name. Most of the Jewish people do not look upon Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, from a historical standpoint, in the name of Jesus, Jews have been butchered and massacred and martyred. So much so that I've taught you whenever you're talking with Jewish people, you need to be very careful to separate cultural Christianity from the Jesus that you worship. Because cultural Christianity has been nothing but a curse for the Jewish people. And so we've celebrated the birth, quote, quote, of the Messiah. But the tragedy is 
And the big question is, how could he have possibly been the Messiah when the Jewish people didn't buy what he said, when they did not receive his message? You know, I've been thinking about that this past week. I don't think most of us have really considered the discouragement and the agony of Jesus Christ calling out to his own Jewish people and them not receiving him. Now, if Jesus had come into the world and said, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one that's going to deliver the Jewish nation, and all the nation had rejected him, and we had no word at all, we had no teaching at all from the Old Testament that prepared us for that kind of a, of a discord, for that kind of a problem, then it would be even a bigger problem. Let's turn in the Bibles to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49 and in this chapter, we have an unbelievable resolution to this problem of how could Jesus have been the Jewish Messiah and yet been rejected by his people. Isaiah chapter 49, we want to raise the issue, do you know what I know? We want to talk about this problem of the Messiah, abhorred by Jews and yet adored by Gentiles. The passage begins like this, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. The Messiah himself is speaking. It's like, he's, it's like the Lord Jesus himself is speaking to us in the first person. And he says, listen to me, you islands. The word island would refer to the coastlands all around the Mediterranean Sea. And the words used, distant nations, would include us. It's very interesting that this passage is addressed specifically to us. In fact, in a very definite sense, we could talk about the United States and North America being an island compared to the land of Israel, the land of Palestine. Only in Isaiah's day, they would refer to the nations around the Mediterranean Sea and then the islands within the Mediterranean Sea as being just about as far as you could go in the world, the distant places in the world. But we can expand it even farther. The Messiah is addressing all the Gentile nations. He's not speaking to just the Jewish people but he's speaking to us. And Isaiah was doing this through the power of the Holy Spirit 800 years before Christ came. Now the Messiah says this, Before I was born, the Lord called me. In other words, the Lord God in heaven, Yahweh, the God of Israel, called this Messiah before he was born. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. Now, that's a very important thing I want you to, first of all, focus on this morning, that this Messiah is a prophet who was chosen from birth. His father, God, was able to call his name. In the birth of the Lord Jesus, this passage was unbelievably fulfilled because an angel came to Mary, and what did the angel say? You shall call his name, tell me. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because Yeshua... Jesus is equivalent to Joshua, in Hebrew, Yeshua, which means salvation. And then it comes over into Greek as Jesus or Jesus. And what the passage is saying is that the angel came to Mary and said, we're going to call this child Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Isaiah predicted 800 years before Jesus came into the world that there would be a Messiah who would be born who God in heaven would call his name, would designate his name even before he was born. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. 
And that passage was unbelievably fulfilled. It mentions in both Matthew's account and in Luke's account that God in heaven designated his name shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, verse 2 is strange. It says, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. Verse 2 talks about the role of this prophet. And it speaks about the the mouth of the prophet being like a sharpened, double-edged sword. Have you ever felt that some people have a tongue that's like a sword? And usually we think about that in kind of a negative way, don't we? You know, like if I use my tongue and I cut down one of my boys and I use my tongue like a dagger, we'll often use that expression. He's got a tongue like a dagger or she has a tongue like a dagger. What do we mean by that? Well, we mean that they use their tongue tongue negatively and it cuts and it slashes and it hurts people. Well, that's not the kind of an imagery that we should think of about the Messiah's tongue. What the Messiah is saying is that God has ordained for the words of his mouth to bring judgment. It's like a great king who is speaking a prophetic word and the very words of his mouth cut like a sword. They penetrate deep into our heart. That idea of penetrations and accuracy of flight come out in the idea of his tongue being like a sword, or I mean like an arrow, like a polished, sharpened arrow. The idea is is that this shaft is very smooth. It's polished so that it flies through the air. It won't have any obstructions. It'll fly accurately. So we have the picture of this prophet who from the very womb of his mother, from his very birth, God has designated his name and he's given him a mission. The word that he speaks is going to penetrate people's hearts. His mission is going to be a mission that goes right to its goal. He's a sharpened arrow prepared by God. Now, as we develop this idea of a man whose tongue is like a sword, we're reminded of some other passages in the Bible. Can any of you think of any passage in the Bible that might liken a person's mouth to the sword? That's right. The Word of God is sharp and, and like a double-edged sword piercing to the, the, to the dividing asunder of soul and marrow, of the joints and marrow. And it has a whole bunch of words heaped one after another to talk about our in, internal being. That's Hebrews 4.12. You know what it's saying there? It's saying that the Word of God, the Scriptures, and also the Word of Jesus, which comes down to us in the Scripture, is sharp like a sword. In fact, as you sit here this morning, the Holy Spirit wants to use the word of the Messiah to penetrate your heart. You see, some of us have very hard hearts. In fact, all of us are born with very hard hearts. And we resist the truth. We don't really want to hear the truth. And what the Messiah is saying is that his word, his tongue, is going to be like a sharpened sword. And as people hear him speak, their consciences will be pricked. Their hearts will be moved. Have any of you ever had that happen? When the Word of God was being read or when it was being preached, suddenly the Word of God became alive for you. Well, that was the original mission of the Messiah. He was to be a prophet 
whose tongue, whose words would penetrate the human heart. And that did happen. In fact, when people listened to Jesus speak, they either responded to him and believed, or they got very angry. They got very upset, so upset that some of them wanted to murder him. One of the things I think that we need to really be concerned about is that we never hear the word of God with the blots. You know, something that really concerns me is that it's so easy for us in our church family to listen to the word of God. We even fall asleep. You know, it's really a tragic, tragic thing to fall asleep when someone's putting a sword in you. You ever stop and think about that? I mean, you'd really, really be sick if someone was plunging you with a sword and you fell asleep. Now, the the great reality of the sword of the Messiah is that because many of you have responded to that Messiah, he is not plunging us with a sword to hurt us. It's much more like a surgeon's scalpel that wants to cut away some areas of hardness, some areas of cancerous growth, which would stifle our spiritual growth. And so as we gather together, it's so important that we listen to the mouth, to the words of the Messiah, that we allow him to penetrate our hearts, that even when I'm speaking to you, that I allow the Messiah to penetrate my heart with his words. You need to ask yourself, do I really believe that the words of the Messiah revealed in the Scripture are the words of truth that can penetrate me, that can touch me, that can move me. And the Messiah was told by God that the Lord God made his mouth like a sharpened sword and he was kept in the shadow of God's hand. He hid me. He made me as a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. And that reminds us of the fact that when Jesus was born and as he was raised as a child, Was he raised in the household of King Herod? Was Jesus raised in the household of the king? Or was Jesus born in Rome and they had all kinds of publicity? Well, now the whole world knows about the birth of Jesus. In fact, we've just been celebrating that. But before that time, before Jesus was born, very few people really responded to the announcement of Mary. Very few people responded to the birth of the Messiah. You see, it really wasn't very well known in those days. And Jesus grew up in relative obscurity. He was like an arrow that was kept in a quiver. He was concealed. In fact, for about 30 years of his life, nobody even heard of him. It wasn't until John the Baptist as a prophet began to speak and began to call the nation of Israel to repent, repent, The kingdom of God is at hand. And John the Baptist began to say, there's going to rise up a man after me whose shoelaces I'm not even worthy to tie because he's so mighty and he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus began to come out of obscurity. And his enemies said, well, you couldn't possibly be the Messiah because you're from the other side of the tracks. And that whole dichotomy of how could Jesus be the Messiah when he's so hidden, when he's so concealed, is predicted here in Isaiah because it says that the arrow, that the sword is going to be concealed in the shadow of God's hand, not to be released until the right time. The arrow is going to be in the pouch. It's going to be concealed as a weapon only to be revealed at just the right time. And Paul tells us in the fullness of time, Jesus came. Verse 3, he said to me, you are my servant Israel 
in whom I will display my splendor. And so we have a prophet who's chosen from birth to communicate the word of God. We also have a champion, the champion of Israel. He can even be called Israel. Now, a lot of times there's been a lot of debate over whether or not this servant is Israel collectively as a nation or whether or not we have an individual. I believe that in this passage it has to be an individual. It has to be an ideal individual who represents in his very person all that Israel was meant to be. You say, Dave, why do you believe that? First of all, it's awfully hard to talk about the mother of a nation and to do it that specifically. It's also hard to talk about the fact that this individual is going to deliver Israel. And yet if you look at verse 5, we find out that that is the mission. It says to bring back Jacob and to gather Israel to himself. So how could Israel gather Israel to himself? You see, that doesn't make sense. So this has to be an ideal Israel. Where did the name Israel come from in the first place? Now stick with me. This isn't easy this morning. Isaiah is not hard to follow when we're trying to fill it in. Israel, the name Israel, was the name that was given to Jacob. Jacob, when he wrestled with God, was a heel. He was the trickster, the one that would always trip people up. But when he wrestled with God, when he revealed that his heart was for God, God changed his name to Israel, the prince of God. From Jacob, who now became Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel became a nation. So he started out with a man named Jacob who took a new name by God named Israel. Then he became a nation, but the nation became Jacob again. That Israel became a deceiver. They became a nation that rebelled against God. Even as Isaiah was running these words, the people weren't responding to him. They weren't listening to him. It was like speaking to people that were just falling asleep. And nobody was really repenting. Nobody's heart was moved. And so Israel had become Jacob again. In the book of Isaiah, though, God began to raise up a new Israel, a new individual who would never be a Jacob at all, but would always be a prince of God. And that's the Israel that's being talked about when it says, You are my servant, Israel. The ideal Israel, the Messiah himself, in whom I will display my splendor. Now, you talk about a purpose for a life. You talk about a reason for existence. We've got an individual that God named him before he was born. How many of you had an angel announce your birth and give you a name? How many of you were told that you would have a tongue that would communicate the very judgment and justice of God? In other words, when you spoke, people's hearts would be penetrated. Their consciences would be moved. Their hearts would respond. And then to be told that you are going to be the ultimate servant of God. God is going to be glorified by everything that you do. Now, you talk about a life. How do you like that? How many of you think that's really an unbelievable purpose? And so we have the birth of Jesus with God naming him, the angels singing, the wise men coming to adore him, all the things we've been talking about. The kids know this story well. Every year we reenact it in some way. And we have the picture of the manger and everyone gathering around and everybody adoring him. And it gives nice, it gives us the nice warm fuzzies. 
It really does. I don't think there's anything that can give more nice, warm fuzzies than a front lawn all lit up and a life-size manger scene. And you look at that and go, oh, wow. I mean, even Andy Williams sings, you know, do you hear what I hear? But, you know, as you really think about not just the Christmas story, but the real honest-to-goodness life of Jesus, it really did not go well. It did not go well for the ministry of Jesus. And I believe it's very easy for some of us to believe, you know, that if we really follow the Lord, there's going to be no time of discouragement at all. In other words, there's going to be our call. We're going to be joined to Christ and then we're going to become the champion of Israel. And we have to be honest, really. Now, you laugh about that, but it's part of all of your lives. We don't like failure. We like the thrill of victory, not the agony of defeat. We like to see the skier come down off the ramp and stretch out over the front of the skis and sail through the air about 120 feet. We don't like to see him fall halfway through and then, oh, no, he goes right off the side of the ramp and failure. Some of you as believers, as you think about your life, as you move past middle age, there's a lot of despondency. Why? Because you don't feel you've accomplished in life what you meant to accomplish. You haven't made the money that you thought you'd make. You haven't achieved the fame you thought you'd had. Somebody a little bit above the ladder than you kind of just shoveled you down. And failure is what you're really facing. Your whole life starts to come unraveled. And that's why I love the fact that we've chosen to follow Jesus. Because if ever there was a man who faced failure, it was Jesus Christ. And I want you to look at what it says here. The Messiah himself is speaking. Have you ever asked yourself, I'd really like to talk to the Lord Jesus after the Jewish nation started walking away from him. As the Jewish nation started rejecting his word, I'd like to be able to sit down with Jesus and have Jesus talk to me. And I'd like to be able to say, Jesus, how do you feel now? The Jewish high priests haven't responded to you at all. In fact, they're getting together in their little council and they want to murder you. Jesus, how do you feel about that? There was a time when you were the number one prophet. You even outdistanced John the Baptist. I mean, John the Baptist was really a a super show, you know, with his skins and eating lotus and honey out in the desert. And thousands of people went to hear him. But Jesus, you even beat him. I mean, if if it was a modern setting, he had a much greater television show than, than anybody would ever imagine. But now they've all rejected him. Your ratings have gone down. You're losing. The people are going away from you. Wouldn't you like to ask the Lord Jesus, how would you feel then? You know what some of you feel that Jesus would say at that time of failure? Oh, there's going to be a new day. We're going to get reorganized. We can do it. I know we can. Man, even in defeat, there can be victory. We're going to come up out of this. We're going to pull ourselves. That's the way some of you live your life. It's a fake out. Some of you have moms and dads, you know, real man, everything, boy, really up and everything. But some of you deep in your hearts know that's really not the way you feel. When you're failing, when your life comes unraveled, and somebody comes in, oh, come on, let's be positive. Things are going to get better. Things are going to be great. Is that the way Jesus relates to failure? Is that the way Jesus, is that what it really means? Some of you are really convinced 
If you're really going to live close to God, you'll never be down at all. You'll always be up. You'll never face, I feel like a failure. I feel like I've blown it. Let's ask ourselves as Jesus watches the Jews walk away, and it looks like his mission is failing how he felt. Look what it says. I have labored to no purpose. How many of you ever feel that way? I have labored and nothing, nothing came of it. I spent my strength in vain and for nothing. You know, those words sound almost like Ecclesiastes. In fact, the words that are used in that verse are echoed again and again in the book of Ecclesiastes. Oh, emptiness of emptiness. All is emptiness. That word is used there. Isn't that a great, great positive thing to say? What's the meaning of your life as we begin a new year? Oh, emptiness of emptiness. It's all just empty. Boy, that's great. Love to hear someone talk like that. What have you done with your life? I tried to do something, but it's all failed. What have you really labored for? You really sweat by the sweat of your brow. What have you accomplished? Nothing. Who said that? You know, Jesus said that. What this verse is saying is Jesus was fully a man. And just like any man, Jesus' mission in life, according to verse 5, was to bring Jacob back to God, to gather Israel back to Yahweh. And from a human standpoint, Jesus was a miserable failure from one perspective at doing that. And Jesus felt it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, part of the sorrow of Jesus was that he came unto his own, and his own received him not. And Jesus was not only rejected by his own people, but sin causes many to continue to reject him now. Isn't it time to honestly face the truth about yourself, open up to God about your own sin, and receive the gift of forgiveness based on Jesus' death? Jesus accepted rejection so that we would never have to be rejected by his Father. Join us next time as we conclude this message titled, Do You Know What I Know? <laughs>